I said, well, is, you know, does this have anything to do with my diet or what I'm eating? And they said, no. And they said, there's no cure for this. You just, you just have it. Some women have it. He woke me up pretty quickly afterwards. He had this shocked look on his face and he said, it's a miracle. You know, most of your problems are gone. And he said, I'm, I'm not comfortable doing a hysterectomy. We need to wait. This is a miracle. I've never seen anything like this. And my mom said, oh, she's been doing this. She's been doing this weird diet. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And my friend, you are here for the fourth episode of the special Your Body in Balance series. And this is one that features one of the more dramatic and heartwarming stories featured in Dr. Barnard's book. Catherine Lawrence Ireland. This is a woman who thought she would never be able to have children. A poor diet led to horrific endometriosis. And the hormones behind that disease were raging out of control inside of her. Raging to the point where still at just a young age, she found herself on an operating table with the surgeon ready to perform a hysterectomy and render her infertile and dashing any hopes she and her husband had of starting a family. The idea, of course, was devastating because she still had her entire life ahead of her. But on that morning, On that operating table, when doctors opened Catherine up, they were floored by what it was they discovered. In fact, they called it a miracle. But what the doctors didn't know was that weeks earlier, she had changed her diet. I had the privilege of traveling to Dallas to sit down with Catherine in her amazing office because now she's devoting her life to helping others experience the same miracle. And she's teaching people about the power of diet. And her business, well, it's appropriately called Food Saved Me. So on today's show, you will be hearing that conversation. And she is so positive and so upbeat about everything, including including about how she kicked a serious macaroni and cheese addiction that was at least partially to blame for her poor health. But then you're also going to be hearing from Dr. Barnard about why the dairy and fat caused Catherine to truly have the blue box blues. The hormone-related science here, it's just absolutely fascinating, and it's why her story and her condition are featured in his new book, Your Body in Balance. That book, by the way, that's out now. But before you order your copy and dive in and start reading, let's hear from Dr. Barnard and Catherine as we chart her incredible journey back to health. And we're going to kick things off in Texas.
This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll sitting across from somebody who just has one of the most remarkable turnaround stories I've ever heard in my entire life. It's such a privilege to be here with you today, Catherine Lawrence Ireland. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. You have quite the unique story, young lady. Um, it is one that when I first heard it, I was just absolutely blown away. But let's not give everything away up front. Let's okay. kind of start from, from the beginning. You have a military background, correct? I do, yes. Oh. I was in the Air Force for five years. Okay, mm-hmm. Air Force for five years. And it's kind of a macho environment, right? A male-driven, <laughs> very testosterone-heavy environment. Sure, yeah. I was in, um, I started out designing missiles, so that's primarily male. And then 9 11 happened. I wanted to be involved with the war and deployment, so I switched to um, bear base engineering, and that's almost all men, but it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you had quite a few adventures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the stereotype is that with men, it's like you have to be a man and you have to eat meat. Yes. And so what, what was the diet like for you during that time? Uh, well, I ate like them. Uh-huh. I would have um, double cheeseburgers and Cokes for breakfast. And, you know, you're working out so much, you know, and exercising, doing PT, that you don't really, I didn't really think about food and my health, you know, or anything like that. We had a vegetarian in our squadron. You don't say. We did. I used to make fun of him. Oh, no. I know. I know. I feel awful. I've reached out to him since then, and we're good friends. I've apologized. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, he's incredible, and he had a good attitude about it. And I think that him him being open and kind the way he was, it probably um, opened a lot of doors, kind of planted a lot of seeds. He was the first vegetarian I'd ever met. And so I thought about him later as I met some. And then as I changed my diet, it was a reminder for me, like, we should just always be kind because people don't always understand, you know, and and that's just a natural response, I think, is just kind of jab at things that you don't understand. So. So it was a learning lesson for me later. <laughs> so let's let's go back a few years even. And so we're at cheeseburgers and Cokes and the military, lots of meat. But you mentioned that you grew up eating a lot of fatty, salty food. Mm-hmm. Give, give us a more, uh, expand on that diet a little bit that you ate growing okay. up. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm from Louisiana, okay. so a lot of rich food. Um, shrimp Creole and gumbo and jambalaya. Um, everything, all of our Cajun recipes typically start, it's called the Holy Trinity. So celery, onion, and bell pepper, but simmered in about a pound of butter. Oh. So that's kind of the base for everything, and you build from there. Okay. So I grew up on a lot of that. Bread pudding, um, really just rich, delicious foods. And there's a culture um, in our community especially that, you know, love and family, everything is tied to food. So that was how I showed people that I love them. I would cook for them. And that's what I did when I was in the Air Force. I would cook for my whole squadron and have, I was kind of like the mother hen <laughs> for a while, you know, just providing that, um, that just, you know, it's, it's satisfying and filling and people liked it. And I think it was a way for me to show love for them. Sure. You know, yeah. it's, it's funny. Life in general, I mean, that's just Air Force or families and basically everybody. I mean, every time you, you, you think about those memories that you have, mm-hmm. and it's often around the dinner table. You know, yeah. it's always with food. You know, something mm-hmm. good happens. Let's eat. Something bad happens. Aw, let's mm-hmm. comfort ourselves. Let's eat, you know. Yeah. It, the day ends in day. Mm-hmm. Let's eat, you know. It's so, <laughs> you know, that's, that's yeah. just kind of the way that we are as people. And you, you said that you didn't really think 
about what it was that you were eating. It was just kind of the norm, right? Yeah, that's just what I was raised on. And um, I, for example, I had never had brown rice before. We have so much white rice in that culture, and I, I didn't even know there was brown rice. Um, but you hear about you know the typical stuff, fat and protein, and but it was just something I was never really. Um, we didn't discuss it at home, and wasn't part of my engineering school. So it just it's just something you pick up from other people and whatever's marketed on TV, right? Sure. sure. Yeah. And so that's the diet that you ate growing up, you know, that holy trinity that you were talking mm -hmm. about. And then that kind of stayed with you throughout your time in the military. And eventually you wind up here in the Dallas area, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I got a job at Bell Helicopter okay. um, working in engineering. Okay. And, and how were you feeling at that point? Was anything amiss? Well, um, well, I still loved food, and I was so. Then I was cooking for my coworkers I worked with. Uh, I wasn't doing five a.m. PT every day like I was in the Air Force, so I started to put on a lot of weight, ah. and and my health was changed. I didn't feel good, and I wasn't. It it took about a year or so for us to figure out why. But it was once I took all of that exercise out, and I just had the implications of my diet. Then I started to. To see it. Mm -hmm. You say you weren't feeling well. What were kind of the symptoms you were experiencing? Well, I had, um, gosh, after a year or so, I started to have horrible abdominal pain. It was very painful. Um, and after I ate, it would be especially bad. Um, so I got misdiagnosed a couple of times. Um, I was very tired and fatigued. Um, and my uh, my monthly cycle was just kind of out of control, very heavy, very painful. Um, and so that was kind of the first inkling when I started thinking about about food just a little bit. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so you're concerned, your your cycle is off. What were some of the misdiagnoses that you were given initially? Oh, I was told I had um, what is it called? I was told I had uh, colonitis. And I was misdiagnosed primarily with digestive disorders. Okay. All along. And so then at one point they thought that I had Crohn's. Um, and then later they said, oh, this, no, this is an ectopic pregnancy. It was, it was several months like trying to figure out what was going on. And it was a total miss. <laughs> and were children something that you always wanted? Like were you starting to get concerned because if your cycle's out of whack and you're having these horrible abdominal pains, did that even start to creep into your mind? Not yet. yet. Okay. I hadn't made the connection. Okay. I, d I didn't make the connection at all that this might affect whether I could have children. I think there's just an assumption that everybody can have children. Gotcha. But it wasn't something that I really desired either. Okay. Um, at that point in my life, I wasn't married or anything. Gotcha. So I wasn't there yet. Okay. So mm -hmm. how long did you go through this? Was it a number of years that you just kind of pushed through? It was about, I want to say, seven or eight months through the misdiagnoses. And I kept, you know, as a patient, I've learned you need to advocate for yourself. Right. So I kept going back and saying, no, this is a problem. I don't think that I have colonitis or, or whatever that is. Um, and so probably seven or eight months when they finally figured out what it was. How was that for you, just not knowing and, and knowing what you were being told, it just didn't feel right? Was that a frustrating process for you? It was, yeah. I think I was um, timid, I think, about my health care in the beginning. And, and so I would kind of go away. And at some point, you know, one of the doctors told me, this is all in your head. And so I disappeared for a little bit. But the problems were there. So I always ended up back in the ER or in my doctor's office saying, no, I think there's... 
there's something going on. Right. Mm -hmm. were, were you, you know, taking an abundance of pills and things like that to try to manage? Uh, just ibuprofen okay. and like pain pills, that's all. And you said that your, your diet hadn't changed that much. I know somebody told me that you were um, eating maybe an abundance of macaroni and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. So I love macaroni and cheese. That was my comfort food. Um, one of my best friends for my birthday got me um, the case of like 48 boxes of mac and cheese. And I ate an entire box every day for 48 days. I oh. got very sick. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got very sick. And so this was during that same time period? No, this was before then, but I would say I, I maintained that love for cheese in general, not just on macaroni. Um, but my diet was very cheese-heavy, Okay. very cheese-heavy when I got sick. Okay, so let's, let's flash forward to kind of the end of that seven- or eighth-month period where you, you know, finally mm -hmm. figure out what's going on. Walk me through that process. Well, I was at the doctor, um, and and they said we've we've I finally made it to the the right specialist. I was at the OBGYN mm -hmm. before we were just focusing on digestive stuff, but um, I was at the OBGYN. He'd run a couple of tests, and he said you have stage four endometriosis and ovarian cysts and uterine cysts, and um, we still couldn't explain the digestive stuff. But he said that my endometriosis was rampant and it, some of it was wrapped around my intestinal um, my digestive organs so that was creating some of the problems mm. um, later we discovered the the actual cause of what the endometriosis had done but he said this is so aggressive you are too high risk for endometrial cancer um, so you need to have a full hysterectomy and I was 27 at the time 27 yeah Okay, mm -hmm. and a hysterectomy obviously means no children after that. Right, but he said, you know, and I, I was trying to understand this, and he said, well, it doesn't matter anyway. You're, it looks like you're completely infertile right. with how your ovaries look and your uterus. Like, I don't think that you'd be able to have children anyway. That must have really stung. Yeah, I, well, I was shocked. I was shocked. I was thinking, like, oh, I'm, I'm just 27. You know, women in my family have had hysterectomies early. Um, we've all had a heavy cycle. My mom used to end up in the hospital for hers. And I remember she had a hysterectomy before she was 40. And my grandmother had one early too. But I didn't, I mean, at 27, I hadn't even started really thinking about that. Mm. So I was shocked. Mm -hmm. so, okay, so you're, you're faced with this. And I guess you just kind of accepted it. Like, my mom had it, this runs in my family, like, mm -hmm. this is just what's going to happen, right? Yeah. Well, I briefly asked a few questions. I said, well, is there, you know, does this have anything to do with my diet or what I'm eating? And, and they said, no. And they said, there's no cure for this. You just, you just have it. Some women have it. And so I kind of, you know, accepted that for a while. Um, it was really with my mom's pushing. She kept saying, like, no, I want grandkids, because mm -hmm. um, I was her only child. So said, I want grandkids, I want grandkids, you need to explore this. And she was constantly sending me resources. I'm like, no, no, there's no cure for this. I think that um, deep down I took comfort in that, Right. that I didn't have any accountability or responsibility. Um, so I, th I think I was comfortable right. with that. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's not your fault, it was out of your hands. It's just this random thing. I'm not going to beat myself up over this. Right. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so... Why did you ask the doctor then the question, does this have anything to do with my diet? Well, my, I mean, my diet was pretty horrible. I, ha I think I was just kind of wanting to tell my mom I tried everything. Okay. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be an informed patient. Um, but my diet was horrible, and I just had 
this little voice inside, you know, feeling like, I think being prior military and being an engineer, just naturally I'm a problem solver. So I was like, okay, <laughs> what do we have to do to solve this? And then, and then all my power is completely taken away. Nothing. You can't do anything about this. Mm. There's no cure for this. But you, you, you kept pushing and you kept looking for answers. Mm-hmm. Was there a conversation with a friend that kind of drove you to take even a closer look at nutrition? Yes, reluctantly. Okay. Um, there, I worked with a good friend um, in engineering, and she was a vegetarian. And she a second said, vegetarian know, pops up in your right? life. Okay. God. Yeah. So she said, um, "I think that I think that you need to talk to somebody. I think it's your diet." And I remember like, no, no, no. They said it wasn't. They said I can continue <laughs> eating this horrible diet. But, um, yeah, she dragged me to a nutritionist, and, and that was a hard conversation. Why, why was that so hard? Um, she, she asked me to, um, you know, she started talking to me first about what certain foods do to a woman's reproductive system, mm-hmm. and that was shocking to me. Um, so we had a conversation about meat and dairy, and she asked me to consider taking that out of my diet. Mm-hmm. And at the time, if I took those out of my diet, honestly, I think the only thing remaining would have been sugar. Oh, my goodness. So I was a little, and I was out of my element. I love to cook, but I love to cook Cajun food. You know, I don't know, I don't know how to make brown rice or, you know, the, like I didn't grow up eating a lot of beans and so it was very scary for me. And the only reason I went is because I wanted to tell my mom that I had tried everything. So It's all about mom, right? <laughs> right. Um, is it also that you said that you kind of took comfort in the fact that the previous doctor had, had told you that there was nothing you could do, mm-hmm. and now here someone else is saying, well, it's the food that you chose to put into your system. Like, was there that accountability starting to creep in? It was uh, I didn't believe it. Okay. I did, I'm not not at that point. Okay. I think I was shocked later down okay. the road when I accepted it. But I didn't believe it then. I thought, okay, I'm my hysterectomy was scheduled, and um, some things happened in my doctor's life where he lost his parents, um, where it got delayed. Mm. So I just thought, in the meantime, I'll try this stupid diet, you know, and and tell my mom that I tried everything. But ultimately, I'm going in for this procedure right. because I have no control. Right, right. right. Yeah. Check that box. <laughs> Mom, I tried everything. I, no I promise yeah. you. Um, so <clears throat> you said you didn't even know how to make brown rice. So like, yeah. you, you know that you have this procedure coming up. That's a lot going on. And now you're trying to learn a completely different way of cooking, something yeah. foreign to anything mm-hmm. you've ever known. How was that process for you trying to figure everything out there? Horrible. Horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> At least you're I honest. I couldn't, you know, there's a lot of great resources in the community now, and I just didn't know about them before. I didn't have access. So I remember many meals were just like a pile of brown rice, a pile of broccoli, and like a can of beans that I opened. <laughs> and and it was, you know, and I was missing all of my flavor mm-hmm. that I was used to and um, variety and so it was it was it was a real challenge I remember people like didn't want to come to my house for dinner anymore and I used to throw these great dinner parties and yeah that was a challenge I wasn't very good in the beginning did mm-hmm. you ask your colleague the vegetarian at work for you know some recipe ideas uh, I did and and she helped me uh, she still ate cheese and so that was something that was primary that I had to remove, mm. so that was a challenge. But she did she did help me cook some, okay. and um, it was just kind of a mess in the beginning. Uh, Figuring, tr- finding my feet. Trial and error, right? Yes. Trial uh-huh. and error. Did you get yeah. like really proficient at making? Did you have a specialty? <clears throat> did you develop one? 
aside from brown rice, broccoli, and beans? Um, well, later. I mean, I have some favorites. Um, but later, I, I got into macrobiotic a little bit. And mm-hmm. so, like, my still my favorite comfort food to this day is brown rice with toasted pecans that have been tossed in a little bit of soy sauce. And that was that was a staple for me. As soon as I tried that, it doesn't sound like much, but it's fantastic. Um, so as soon as I tried that, it was that became a staple for me. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, actually. it's so good. So simple, so good, right? <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, okay, so how long uh, of a time elapsed between when you decided to eat that vegetarian? Well, I, that's a vegan diet at that point. Completely. You were one hundred percent because you're, you're not doing any meat or dairy or no. No oil, products. no animal products. Well, at all. No oil either. No oil. Okay, mm-hmm. you you jumped all the way in. Yeah, all the way in. Okay, Didn't so know what I was doing. the oil aspect that must have been another big one for you since you that was, ate so much butter. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I probably cheated a little bit on there. Um, but it, in general, it was very low oil compared to what I'd been doing before. For sure. Mm-hmm. So you start eating that way, and then how much time elapsed before the day of your procedure? Um, probably five or six weeks. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's what, just a little over a month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you go in for the procedure that morning. What happens? Um, well, we went in. My family was there, and uh, he woke me up pretty quickly afterwards, probably half hour or so. And um, he had this, you know, shocked look on his face, and he said, "It's a miracle, you know, most of your problems are gone." And we were all shocked. He said, "So I didn't do the hysterectomy. I didn't feel comfortable doing the hysterectomy." He said, "I had tremendous scarring all on the inside of my abdomen." What was creating the digestive problems is I had um, an endometrial adhesion around the wall of my colon Mm -hmm. that made it stick to my abdominal wall. So every time food tried to pass through my colon, it was very painful. So that's where the misdiagnoses came from. Um, So he removed the adhesion and he said, I'm I'm not comfortable doing hysterectomy, we need to wait. This is a miracle, I've never seen anything like this. And my mom said, oh, she's been doing this, she's been doing this weird diet. And he (laughs) said, that's not it, (laughs) it's a miracle. Of course he did, that's so funny. So, but I remember, I think my mom was happy but I remember being disappointed. I remember thinking inside, oh my gosh, I have to eat this way forever. And I'm not, I'm not enjoying it. I'm not, I don't know how to do this. It's, I define myself almost, you know, a lot of my identity is wrapped around food right. and cooking for people. So I remember inside being a little bit um, disappointed. Were you, were you as surprised as your doctor? By this? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had noticed the pain had changed, but I, I really, I think I dismissed it from the beginning, mm. so I wasn't expecting this at all. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, that's so funny. You woke up disappointed. You didn't have the surgery, but you're disappointed. <laughs> Man, yeah. that says something about food, doesn't it? It does. It's an addiction, yes. It, it absolutely <laughs> does. And, but that's that's very funny. Did you initially think that it was your diet? Did you know that, like, right away when the doctor told you that? Yeah. Okay, even mm-hmm. though he was still skeptic about it, you knew. Right, I knew, okay. yeah, because I knew, you know, by that point I'd started learning a little bit about food, you know, working with her, and it was the only explanation. My problems did not come and go every month with my cycle. Mm-hmm. Mine had lasted a long time. Um, I think I truly surrendered after about six months later. Um, I've had, and this is a family thing. My mom, my grandmother, my cousins all have them. We have fibroid cysts in our breasts, mm-hmm. and they're very painful, you know, at certain times of the month. But I had seven, and they're kind of always with me. And after about six months, they had completely dissolved. 
So that was the point when I just completely, I said, okay, this is the diet that my body seems to function the best on. And, and all other, um, some really other great things happened as well. Wow. In that, yeah. What, what mm-hmm. other great things? Um, well, I, I dropped my cholesterol. Uh, my blood pressure went down to a healthy level. I lost 55 pounds. Good job. And I eat a lot. <laughs> I eat a lot. So that was nice that I actually, you know, was feeling good about the way I looked. And um, a big tell for me, I at 27, I started to get this new hair growth. It was just sticking straight up. And that's not normal for a 27-year-old. <laughs> and I still get it now at 42. Um, you know, most women my age, we're starting to see our hair thin. and but, but mine was thick and coming in. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the power of diet. I have... I feel cheated. Like I'm literally regenerating, you know, recovering my health. It was so empowering. And so that was, it took me about six months, but I completely surrendered and said, okay, this is it. Right. You know, this is what my life's going to be about now. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that your diet had expanded beyond the brown rice, broccoli, and it beans did. at yes, that point. Yes, <laughs> yes. I found, I found PCRM and the Cancer Project and the China Study and Fort Worth Vegetarian Society. And so I had all these resources and recipes. So it was, I was getting better wow. with my cooking. Yeah. So, so after mm-hmm. the procedure then, like you, you just continued learning. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, if, if you're looking for the physician's committee, you're looking for the China study, like all of that stuff, like you, mm-hmm. you just dove right into the deep I end. I did, yeah, because I felt like, gosh, there's this whole, what if I hadn't tried that diet? Right. I, mean, that, I think that's what humbled me. What if I had just said, okay, let's do the hysterectomy, I give up. You know, my whole life would look different. You know, I'd have a hysterectomy. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Your life would be a whole lot different because yeah. here we are. And, um, you know, flash forward, you were going in that morning to have a hysterectomy, mm-hmm. never to have children afterward. Right. How many children do you have today? I have three that I've had on my own. Um, they are two, six, and eight. All boys. You've got your hands full. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I have two stepkids. Um, they're 19 and 22. Outstanding. So, but, yeah, I went from... I, it literally saved my life. Uh, I went from not being able to have children to now now I have an abundance. And, and this is how they've been raised. And so they've had the information from the beginning. Wow. We talk about it. We talk about why we have tomatoes at home and how to have conversations at school because second grade is you know, somewhat challenging to navigate at lunchtime. Yeah. Um, so they are getting, I feel like they have this advantage and they have this information early uh, that I wish I'd had. That's mm-hmm. funny, you know, food saved me. I, I would also mm-hmm. say, like, food gave them life, you know? Yes, yeah, That's, yeah. Um, so, I mean, gosh almighty. So they're, they're being raised vegan now. Your husband, is he plant-based mm-hmm. as yes. well? Mm-hmm. The whole family. All doing the it pregnancies together. were, too. That's mm-hmm. great. So talk yeah. about the day that you found out that you were pregnant. What were those emotions? Oh, Oh, gosh. Um, A lot of crying, a lot of tears. It was many years after my healing. I have been teaching for a long time, you know, and and telling my story of how I recovered. And um, a lot of my students, you know, they knew that we were trying to get pregnant. And and when we did, it was just, it was like... um, it was like a pinnacle moment for me, I guess mm-hmm. is how I would describe it, because I had this whole community of students that I had been teaching. And so me being able to um, experience that and be pregnant and overcome it, I think gave them a lot of hope, too. You know, and so we just kind of all went through it together. Um, the first pregnancy was very special, you know, because they were all just so involved and I was able to go to a class and tell my story and say look (laughs) now there's a baby (laughs) you know so it was 
But everyone has been that way. The so I'm 42 now. I have a two-year-old that was um, not planned. That was a surprise. And I just was like, wow, we need to slow this thing down. <laughs> you know? But every one of them is a reminder. When I, when I um, in the early days, you know, when it was, when I feel challenged or discouraged or, you know, I look at them and I'm like, gosh, if somebody, if I hadn't had a persistent friend, they wouldn't even be here. And mm-hmm. so maybe for some people... Maybe I can be that. Maybe I can just plant a little seed, and it might change their life later, um, like Laura did for me. And and that's kind of what you're doing now. You're mm-hmm. paying it forward, exactly, with your classes. And yeah. I mean, you've really become kind of a leader in this community. Oh, thank you. Well, the community thanks you. Are you kidding me? Our goal is to give back because um, access back then, 15 years ago, uh, was sparse in our area, and so now we have classes where we focus on disease prevention and nutrition. And and I think it's all about empowering because I think um, a lot of times patients get dismissed. You know, like, oh, they're not not willing. I would talk to them about diet, but they're not willing to change. But that's not what we see. We see people, the community is begging for it, Mm -hmm. um, for the information. They want it. And if they can't find it at their physician's office, then they're going to go. They're going online. They're coming to classes and... Um, so that's what we just try to be, um, just try to pay it, pay it forward to the community. Um, I need to ask you about your mom. How happy is she that she's got three grandbabies? <laughs> she's so now? happy. I bet. They wear her out. Um, <laughs> yeah. she's, um, it's just the greatest thing for her, though. And she's, you know, she kind of takes credit for it. She's like, see, see, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm Mama Angie's the reason you're here. <laughs> um, but she loves it. And more importantly, she supports it. She believes in it because she knows that that's how they got here. And so... I have, they have a grandmother who makes the same food for them when they go to visit her. You know, I don't have to worry about, I hear that from moms in my classes. I try to feed my kids healthy and they go to grandma's house and it's, you know, ice cream and um, chicken nuggets or whatever. And so, so I'm really lucky that I have, I have a mom that supports it verbally, you know, vocally and in her actions um, to the boys. I think that makes a big difference. You know. so, yeah, so it's just normal for them. Right, yeah. it's just normal. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question that I have for you, you're such a, a cheese fan, and, you know, Dr. Barnard <laughs> will joke on the show, like, you know, how often he hears, I would go vegan, except I just can't give up cheese. But yeah. you did it, but, you know, you can still enjoy that cheesy kind of a flavor when you're eating a plant-based diet. So what are the cheese favorite dishes that you eat now? Well, so I still eat macaroni and cheese, mm-hmm. um, but I make a sauce with um, some soy milk and nutritional yeast and spices, and it's fabulous, and my boys love it, yeah. so that's one of their favorites. Um, also, I make, so in Texas, we like, you know, queso and um, a lot of cheese stuff on everything, so I have a queso recipe. I just blend cashews with water, put some spices and nutritional yeast in there, and it makes a great queso. I put that on the boys' broccoli or on our tacos or something. So um, I'm trying to think what else. Those are, our, I think, our biggest ones. A lot of it, you know, cheese is addicting. Oh, it's yeah. supposed to be. It's supposed to make a baby want to go to the mother <laughs> and get milk. You know, that's what that's what the milk is for, um, to create that addiction between the cow, the baby, and the mom. But um you know, for us, some things I've just had to let it go. Mm-hmm. I've just had to recognize I'm I'm not going to find a substitute that tastes exactly like it, and I'm okay with that. You know, because how I feel and how I look is is um, 
it better than anything could taste. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But yeah. isn't it funny, like, the amazing ways, though, with the things that you can replicate? You know, mm -hmm. who, I'm sure, like, if uh, you're talking to yourself back in the Air Force, and you said, hey, I'm going to make a queso out of cashews, would you have looked at yourself like you have two heads? Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> it is wild. I would have, yeah. It is wild. Yeah, but I think that um, times are changing. Awareness is changing. And what I found, all of our classes at Food Save Me, we don't just preach nutrition. We um, show them how to make the recipes and let them taste it. Because if I said, you know, you should go home and make a chocolate mousse out of tofu, nobody's going to do that. Right. But if I make the chocolate mousse out of tofu and they fall in love with it here, and maybe their spouse is here too to try it, um, then I found that they're so much more empowered. And so I didn't have those resources back then. So if somebody had told me about cashew cheese, I'd be like, ugh. But if somebody drugged me to a cooking class where I got to try it, I would have loved it. Sure. I love food. Yeah. You know, I'm a foodie. So if it tastes good, I'm in. Well, then I think that you're, you're in the perfect <laughs> career, what you're doing Thank now. You. you. know. Yeah. You said before we started rolling, you know, everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. And clearly that brought us here today. Yes. Thank so. you so much. Well, what an amazing story. Thank you so very much for Thank taking you. the time to join us. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> It strikes me that the doctor didn't think that Catherine's new eating habits had anything to do with the condition clearing up, choosing instead to chalk this whole thing up to divine intervention, a miracle. But what I've come to learn during my time hosting the exam room is that, really, that's not even the doctor's fault. Because as we've heard time and again here on the show, we are falling well short when it comes to educating medical professionals about nutrition. It's not part of the med school curriculum, and ultimately it's up to the professionals themselves to seek out this information. And my next guest, he shares that same sentiment and wrote the new book, Your Body in Balance, in hopes of not just educating the patients, but the practitioners as well. Dr. Barnard is about to join us to explain the hormonal-related science behind our diet and endometriosis. What is it about the foods that Catherine was eating that caused her hormones to go haywire and ultimately lead to significant endometriosis? More importantly, why did that condition miraculously disappear when she altered her diet? Dr. Barnard is about to make that connection for us as he joins me in the exam room. As we continue here on a special edition of the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll, sitting across the table from the author of the new book, Your Body in Balance, The New Science of Food, Hormones and Health. Dr. Neil Barnard, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Chuck. Great to be here today. We were just speaking about Catherine Lawrence. Uh, spoke to Catherine Lawrence. Actually traveled all the way down to Dallas to, to interview her. Just a wonderful woman. What a yes. remarkable story. And she was just put through the ringer with endometriosis. She told us about what she experienced and how difficult it was. But I'm glad you're here because now you can help us understand a little bit more about the science behind it. What actually was going on. Well, you said it. W uh, women with endometriosis do go through the ringer. Um, first, it, it takes some time to diagnose what's going on, and then the treatments for it are sometimes pretty heroic, um, which uh, 
The good news, of course, then, is that diet changes may be surprisingly powerful for other women just as they were for Catherine. I mean, they were just night and day for her. Oh, yeah. So w- what endometriosis means is it's the endometrium. The endometrium is endo inside the uterus. So inside the uterus is a layer of cells that grow and form a little cushion in the, in the, in the inside of the uterus in case uh, pregnancy might occur. But the problem is that in endometriosis, those cells that are supposed to be lining the uterus somehow have escaped. What we believe is happening is they're going up the fallopian tubes, but where we see them is they're spilling out all around the abdominal cavity, and they can implant, and then they grow and shrink and grow and shrink with a woman's menstrual cycle. Uh, They cause pain. They can attach to all kinds of of, uh, body parts. They can attach to the intestinal tract so that every time a woman goes to the bathroom, it hurts. Um, They cause uh, what's called dyspareunia, meaning she's going to have pain during sex. Um, But you can just have pain all month long, and it's, for some women, excruciating during during the menstrual time. So that's what endometriosis is. Um, And then up until recently, the question was, what do you do about it? Well, you take hormones, you take fistfuls of ibuprofen, and if none of that works, um, surgery. Right. Um, And the problem is that often times these don't solve the problem. Right. I think I read uh, somewhere when I was doing a little bit of research for this segment that a lot of doctors will actually prescribe opiates if the pain is so overbearing for a woman as well. That to me, I don't... I'm not – I'm just saying that doesn't sound like the best course of treatment to me. Well, it's an index of how bad the pain is. Right. Because for some women, uh, the pain is just unbearable. And so for some days every single month, they're not working. They're not doing anything. They're just lying there miserable. Right. And so surgery, uh, what doctors will do is they'll make a little incision. This is laparoscopic surgery. You right. make it – you put a tube through under the belly button. And you look around and you can remove these implants um, surgically. This is heavy-duty stuff, mm-hmm. and the problem is that sometimes that surgery, A, it doesn't work at all. The, the person still hurts. Secondly, um, the implants come back. These, these cells come back. And then uh, what I have to say I think is one of the really cruel parts of this is that women are sometimes told, you're just not tough enough. Uh, you don't have that bad of a disease. Why is this hurting you so much? Why are you complaining? Why can't you make it into work? And what people had thought, mistake, what doctors had mistakenly thought was that if, if there were not lots of implants all around the abdomen, it shouldn't really hurt very much. Then researchers discovered, wait a minute, the reason that it hurts is that the, in, the individual implants that are, all, that are around the abdomen produce what are called prostaglandins. These are maladjusted chemicals that cause pain. And so it's not a question of how widespread the implants are. It's how much prostaglandins they are producing. And you can have what looks visually like not very extensive disease, but if they are cranking out a lot of these compounds, it's like a knife in your stomach. Mm. And so for for many women, they feel terrible and their doctors don't understand them and their boss is complaining and and their life just really gets miserable. Um, It should not be that way. This is a condition that is very common. The treatments for it are, are... a big part of uh, OBGYN practice. And what we think is that the answer is food. 
We're going to talk about that in just a second, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about that surgery because Catherine told the story about how she was to go in for this surgery, literally goes in the morning of, gets opened up, and the doctor's like, it's a miracle. You don't need to have this procedure. Right. Well, what happened between the day that it was scheduled and the time that she goes to the operating table? She changes her diet. The doctor seemed to dismiss the fact that diet was, in fact, a role here, and what caused this miracle you're saying food is the key. F- food, f- I, yes. First of all, endometriosis is dependent on estrogens, female sex hormones. Estrogens are dependent on food. And a lot of doctors have not learned this when they were in medical school or later. But there was a fair amount of research back, particularly this started in the ni- 1990s. Researchers wanted to see how can we tackle breast cancer. Breast cancer is driven by estrogens. So the question is, what food choices can we make that will moderate estrogen activity? And what researchers at Tufts University did, many, many different researchers did this too, but at Tufts, they did a good good job. They brought in a large group of women, and they stayed there in the laboratory day after day, and the researchers fed them different diets, high-fiber diets, uh, lots of beans and vegetables and fruits and whole grains. And they found that fiber helps to trap excess estrogens and remove them from the body. Hmm. Um, They then fed them high-fat diets, and high-fat diets tended to increase estrogen levels. So fiber was protective. It reduced estrogens. Fat was harmful. It increased estrogens. And then they said, well, let's do both together, high-fiber, really low-fat, and that worked better than, than either one alone. So when Catherine had such terrible endometriosis and she saw a dietetic expert, what did they do? They put her on a plant-based diet because plants have lots of fiber in them, and they have very, very little fat. Right. And so you're doing the best of all these things. And what happens? <laughs> Within just days, she starts feeling better. I mean, she's, of course, losing weight and getting better energy, and her digestion is better. But what happens is the, the, the liver removes estrogens from the blood. It sends them through the bile duct, which is a little tube leading to the digestive tract. And that's where fiber picks them up and just literally carries the estrogens out. You're you're flushing them away. So she's suddenly got a lot of fiber in her diet. The excess estrogens are being pulled out, out out of the body. Those implants start dissolving, 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 go away. She goes to see the surgeon who opens her up and says... What's this? <laughs> Where did all the implants go? It's got to be a miracle. Um, well, this miracle is something that I think every woman deserves to know about, which is uh, go really high fiber, go really low fat. And the best way to do that is with four groups, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and the, the neglected bean group or legume group <laughs> because those are the fiber champions. Uh, keep the fat content low. And, and that's important too. Uh, some people will go um, – to a more plant-based diet, but they're still eating a lot of grease, right? fatty foods, peanut butter, and oils. Keep those things to a minimum, too, if you're trying to tackle uh, uh, the endometriosis and see how you do. You know, so now I'm kind of getting this picture with how quickly Catherine's turnaround was. And I'm not sure that it's the same rapid change for every woman who changes her diet, but I, I'm kind of... Th- thinking of food here as gasoline on a fire and you have to keep fueling the fire in order for it to keep burning so you keep pouring gasoline on it and high fat food in this case would be that gasoline so when you eliminate that from the diet what happens yeah the fire burns out so uh in i think in Catherine's case perhaps uh, her her beloved blue box macaroni and cheese was the gasoline here great analogy Uh, um i think it's really true um Meat, uh, meat is part of the problem. There was an Italian study that looked at women who ate meat every day. 
and they compared them to women who ate meat, say, less than half the days of the week. And they found that just that difference, if, if, if people would cut down to, say, three or fewer days a week, that, was, that would cut their endometriosis risk by about 50%. Mm. So, so that was a big thing. Uh, the, at Harvard, the Nurses' Health Study 2 found much the same thing, that the women who are the big meat eaters had the most endometriosis um, because meat has a lot of fat, has zero fiber. Um, but in Catherine's case, she said, wait a minute, we got to say a word about cheese. Cheese is 70% fat for the typical cheeses. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of fat. It's mostly bad fat, zero fiber. But there's, there's an, an added problem with cheese, and that's that unlike every other food, cheese actually has estrogens in it. Oh. Uh, they come out of the cow in the milk, and they're concentrated as milk is turned into cheese. So, so cheese, yes, it's very fatty. Yes, it has no fiber, but, but it has actual estrogens. Not, not a lot. It's just traces. But we think it's enough to be biologically active. This may sound like a silly question, but those estrogens exist even in the powdered form of the cheese that comes with the macaroni and cheese because that has dairy. The, all of that is still in there, right? Um, yes. Uh, the, the, the answer is yes. And I, I know this is breaking the heart of cheese lovers everywhere, right. but, but cows make estrogens right. and it gets into their milk and it's accentuated by the pretty much universal practice uh, in dairies of impregnating the cows annually. They're artificially inseminated and so they're pregnant um, every, every year and their gestation is about nine months. So three quarters of every year the cows are, are pregnant and a pregnant cow makes extra, extra estrogen that gets into the milk. It's not a lot. It's only a trace. It's right. Re- it's really only a trace. But what we think is, wait a minute, a woman's body has all the estrogen she needs, mm-hmm. all the estrogen that Mother Nature had in mind for her, if I can put it that way. And so if you're having a slice of cheese, you're getting extra. Right, right. Let me, as as we kind of put a, a, a bow on this topic, I wanted to ask you also about uh, so another risk factor for endometriosis, which I looked up according to the Mayo Clinic, uh, starting a period at an early age. And I believe on a previous show, maybe you and I have discussed that girls nowadays tend to be getting their periods at an earlier and earlier age because I do believe of things like dairy and processed meat, correct? We think that's what's going on. And it's been going on for a very long time. In fact, even back into the middle of the 1800s, if you looked at at what age are do women reach fertility? Right. Uh, when do they when do they reach what, what doctors would call menarche, the first period? It was around 17 or 18 years of age, um, and then it's been slowly dropping. We believe entirely for environmental reasons, and by environment I mean the environment of your dinner table, right? Um, foods um, th- that there's been more and more. Uh, subtraction of fiber from our diet, more and more addition of of fatty foods and and cheese. Even in nineteen, I think it was nineteen o four, something like that. Nineteen o four, nineteen o six, somewhere around there, the USDA started tracking cheese consumption. In that at that time, the average American couldn't go through four pounds a year. Mm. Today. 34, 35, 38 pounds would be pretty typical. Wow. And, and every mouthful has estrogens in it. So we think that these are probably responsible for that change. But, you know, if you think about it, at what age is a woman able psychologically to be a mother and to raise a baby? Not at 13, 14. Right. But 18, 19, maybe so. I mean, that, that's when she's physically and becoming uh, more uh, emotionally mature. Um, 
So it looks like this change is something that nature didn't have in mind. And and that's really interesting because you and I recently, and, and you will hear this conversation uh, in a future show, but you and I recently had the opportunity to sit down with Nina and Randa Nelson uh, when we were out in Los Angeles. These were two twins, wonderful young girls, who just suffered from horrific acne. But they have been raised vegan since birth. And they actually said on the show that they didn't hit puberty until a later age. And so I'm just kind of thinking, well, they didn't eat meat. They didn't eat dairy. And so maybe they had that natural timeline that you were just talking about. Um, that's what we think is actually the case, that, that physical puberty, physical, physical maturity should correspond with psychological maturity. Now, some of us would argue that we don't reach psychological maturity until we're at least 57. Do we ever hit that? <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest with you <laughs> – uh, but all, all kidding aside, um, s- somewhere around age age eighteen twenty, that's kind of what nature was thinking. Right. Uh, but that those days are gone. Right. Uh, right. Nowadays, um, you'll see kids. Uh, in fact, it's changing for for boys and girls. So they'll become sexually mature at twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the consequences of it, of course, go far beyond uh, the physical things. Uh, before we wrap things up, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is important? Yeah. Um, maybe just what a person should do. Yeah. Let's say a, a woman has endometriosis. It's not always uh, clear that they have that. Uh, they might just have pain. So they sh- obviously should be seeing their doctor and, and get evaluated. But if that's the diagnosis, then what's the answer? The answer is to get all the animal products out of your diet. And don't take this on faith. Just give it a try for two or three menstrual cycles, two or three months. Get the animal products out of your diet completely. What that will do is that eliminates all the animal fat, and it greatly increases fiber. Step two, keep the oils really low and oily foods. So learn non-oil cooking techniques. When you're at a restaurant, ask them to minimize oils and avoid things like peanut butter and guacamole and so forth. Now, I know we love these foods. Um, Take a few months and just set them aside. Uh, what will typically happen is you'll see a little bit of weight loss. Uh, Catherine described that. Yeah. Um, your energy is better. Your digestion is better. But see if your symptoms don't start to improve. And then what we believe is also going to happen is that fertility then gets better. And as you know, Catherine was prepared to have a hysterectomy to solve the problem. She never had it. Nope. The endometriosis went away. She's got three children now. Wonderful. Yeah. So I would encourage a- any woman who has this to, again, don't take this on faith. Just give it a try in your own life. Animal products out. Keep the oily foods low. See how you do. I'm really glad that you and I had the opportunity to talk about this today because I've had so many listeners write in and ask about endometriosis. Can you please do a show on this? I didn't realize how prevalent of a problem this actually was. So many women out there have this. It's it's very, very prevalent. And, and there's... Um a lot of sort of detective work trying to go on, uh, going on to try to see what contributes to it. And, and some people have said, well, there could also be roles for environmental chemicals that, cause, that, that maybe is what causes the endometrial cells to migrate in the wrong direction. That's all possible. But with regard to what are we going to do about it, let's make a diet change and see if we can't get better. Before this series began, so many of you exam room listeners wrote in and asked us to cover endometriosis. So I hope that you have learned all of the information that you had been hoping for. And I hope more that you became inspired by Catherine's story. 
But if there are any lingering questions, no problem. Please feel free to reach out to us. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. And you can also find me on Facebook and shoot me a message there. I love to communicate with you guys. You can also find the Physicians Committee on Twitter at PCRM and on the gram at Physicians Committee. Just spelled out little bit different and dr barnard now on instagram as well so check this out at dr neil barnard good for both twitter and instagram at dr neil barnard that is the place to go and also the place to go my friend if you are living in the washington dc area the place to go is bus boys and poets so come join us ask a question in person friday night february 7th we will be doing a live recording of the exam room at the Bus Boys and Poets right in the heart of the city. And we're going to be covering everything featured in his new book, Your Body in Balance. We're going to be going well beyond Catherine's remarkable story because you're also going to be hearing about how dietary changes can get the hormones in balance that control acne and diabetes and PCOS, depression, weight gain, hormonal issues related to menopause and thyroid issues. There are so many things to cover and so many stories to tell. Stories and science that hopefully will help improve the quality of your life. So please go ahead and join us Friday night, February 7th at Bus Boys and Poets. We've posted a link to RSVP in the show notes below. And as a special bonus, here's a deal for you. The cost of the ticket also includes a copy of the book. But act fast because I do believe at last check there were only a couple more seats remaining. So if you want to join us Friday night, February 7th at Bus Boys and Poets in D.C., go ahead and click that link in the episode notes below to RSVP. And if you're not in the Washington, D.C. area, fear not, my friend. Dr. Barnard is currently crisscrossing the country. He's on a whirlwind tour, bringing all of this science and hope, hopefully, to a city near you. I think there are something like 40 dates on the calendar right now. Maybe we'll be adding more. So you can check out the full schedule at pcrm.org slash book tour. And of course, we've also put a link to that in the episode notes below. And by the by, while you're in the clicking mood, you can also find a link to purchase your body and balance in those same episode notes, or you can just head over to pcrm.org slash your body and balance. So many links, so much clicking to do. But we're not done yet. Also, please make sure that you subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts and wherever it is that you get your favorite shows so that you can be among the first to get these very special episodes with this life-changing and even life-saving information each and every week. And when you do subscribe, please, please also leave a five-star rating because that helps even more people find us and ultimately then experience a healthier life themselves. Think about this, right? If you're listening to this, if you're hearing this, if you hear my voice right now, there's a pretty good chance that you've already made a significant change in your life and you're feeling pretty good. It's a great feeling, right? So let's help somebody else have that, right? Let's pay it forward. And one of the easiest ways you can do that, believe it or not, is just to leave a five-star rating. And that's going to do it for us today. That's going to do it as we continue our Your Body Imbalance series. I promise you there are more shows, more science, and more hope still to come. 
My thanks again to the remarkable Catherine Lawrence Ireland, and of course, Dr. Neil Barnard. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. Thank you.